Hey, we want to encourage you to continue those conversations, not only after the service, but beyond the rest of the day, into the rest of the week. We want to be the church throughout the week as well. Apologies for lying about the time. I was just having a really good conversation with Charlotte, and so I don't apologize, actually. I really don't care. All right, so we're into week 10 of our series in the book of Ecclesiastes. If you're new here, what we tend to do for 75% of the year is just preach through whole books of the Bible from the first verse to the last, and, um, and that's what our kids will be doing as well, looking at the same scriptures and uh, learning the same big idea as we are here this morning. And so um, this morning we're going to, uh, our text is uh, chapter 9 and chapter 10. Again, I'm not going to cover every verse of that because it's just a little too long. And even though I would enjoy it immensely, you would hate me for it, okay? So what we're going to do instead is just look at some of the major uh, themes and ideas in this text. And so what I want to do is begin by, um, begin by just referencing for you, showing you how in touch I am with the culture, probably the motto of this decade, YOLO. YOLO. Hands up if you know what I mean when I say YOLO. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Okay, about a fifth of you, all right? YOLO. Anyone want to tell us what it means? You only live once, right. YOLO. You only live once. If you're following people on Twitter, especially young, cool kids like me, you might see some kind of witty or profound thought hashtag YOLO, you only live once. So it's, um, it's become massively imp- uh, important and massively popular uh, today as a motto for life, but it actually uh, goes back many hundreds of years. Uh, the, the, the saying itself, you only live once, can be traced back a few hundred years, especially I think it originated in German um, with someone who named a concerto that you only live once or something like that. Uh, the reason it's going to be our title for this morning is because that's where Solomon's going to end up after he kicks off with one of the most depressing uh, passages in this book, probably the most. And if you've been here the previous nine weeks, you, you know he's already plumbed the depths of his own despair and depression. So it's not going to be an easy start, but I'm going to encourage you to pick up your Bibles, turn to chapter 9. I think it's page 557 if you've got a church Bible. If you don't own a Bible, take that one with you or find one that's in really good condition and take that one with you because that's our gift to you, all right? So Ecclesiastes chapter 9. We all there? All right. Let's do it. Verse 1 to 6. He's kind of recapping everything he said in the previous eight chapters. He said, All this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event, that's death, happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and evil. To the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and he who does not sacrifice, as is the good, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. 
this is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event, that's death, happens to all. Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after they go to the dead, after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope for a living dog is better than a dead lion. Tweet that, hashtag YOLO. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have, have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. What he's saying is, after contemplating all that he's contemplated, and if you read through the first eight chapters, he's really contemplated everything under the sun. All of life. Now, as an old man who's experienced everything that there is to experience, he comes to the conclusion here that everything is meaningless, everything is evil, life itself is pointless because, in the end, whether you're a good person or a bad person, whether you do right or evil, whether you sacrifice or don't sacrifice, whether you swear an oath or you shun an oath, you're going to die. The same event happens to everyone. Everyone is going to die in the end. And then he continues in verse 11 to 12, just to give you a little more of a pick-up on a Sunday morning. He says, Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favour to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of men are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. He's saying, listen, life, no matter whether you're intelligent or not, no matter whether you're strong or not, no matter whether you're rich or not, no matter what you are and how you, how you are and what you do and how you live, Death takes us all, and like a fish in a net or a bird in a snare, it can happen at any time. Being a good person doesn't help you avoid death, nor does it guarantee that you'll have a long life. You can be a great person who dies young. We've coined a phrase, haven't we? Only the, the good die young. That's emphatically not true, but often it's the case. It's the good person the generous person who dies from cancer at age 33. And Solomon comes to terms with all of this and says, this is evil. This is an evil. So let's just reflect on this, because this is obviously the truth, right? Death comes to everyone, right? Death comes to everyone, and it doesn't discriminate on who they are and what they've done. Very often it is the tyrannical leader, the dictator, the serial, uh, the serial killer. It's the unfaithful husband. It's the torturer. It's the oppressor who lives to a, to a ripe old age. Now, there are plenty of responses to this. Let me reference a few of them. Let me reference secular humanism, uh, sort of karmic justice, um, 
the prosperity gospel and biblical Christian faith. All right? So let's start with secular humanism. This is the, the stuff, this is the culture we live and breathe in. This is what most of your kids will be, uh, this is the framework they're being educated within going to school. This is most of the people you'll speak to. Secular humanism, the belief that everything is in the material, that nothing exists, that we cannot taste, touch, see, hear, that there is nothing beyond this life. John Lennon summarised it poetically when he said in his song, Imagine, imagine there's no heaven above us, no hell below us. But in that worldview, that person comes to the conclusion that Solomon comes to and says, so what? So what? Yes, that's reality. That's life. That is the reality of life. We are animals living on a planet where uh, death comes as a natural result of our bodies breaking down over time. Where those who can take advantage of those who are weaker than themselves will be elevated. Where survival is for the fittest. The secular humanist reads this, and if, if they're honest, and if they have integrity in their worldview and their belief, they will say, yeah, that's how things work. That's life. There's no meaning beyond what we experience. There is no meaning beyond what we can taste, touch, see, and hear. At the end of the day, there really is no basis for morality or ethics or anything else. You can't cry out against that which we experience because that's all that there is. So for them, YOLO becomes this kind of motto that encourages them to do what they like. See, in the past where you only live once was a, was a motto that encouraged people to seize the day, that the equivalent was carpe diem, seize the day. Live for what matters. Live deeply. Live an upright, right life. In, in hundreds of years ago, because it was, came out of a Christian context, it was really live a godly life. You only live once. Heaven and hell await, so live like Jesus. In today's secular humanist society, where there is no heaven, there is no hell, there is no Jesus, YOLO actually becomes do what you like. So I looked at a few tweets that have been hashtagged YOLO uh, in preparation for this, and one was from a, a rapper who has actually since died who said, uh, driving drunk on the freeway at 120 miles an hour, expletive YOLO. Right? You only live once, so why not do that? Another one, this is pretty funny, a guy posted a detention slip he got at school and had been written out by the teacher and it said, uh, detention, this date, reason given for running across the room, throwing things and yelling YOLO repeatedly. Right? <laughs> That'll get your detention. He was yelling YOLO repeatedly because he was thinking, why not get a detention? Why not flaunt the rules? Why not chuck stuff at people? You only live once. You see the distinction? For one group of people where uh, reality extended beyond this life, beyond what we can experience, you only live once was an encouragement to live deeply to those of us who have grown up in a secular humanist world. With that worldview, YOLO becomes 
do what you like. Experience what you can. Squeeze out of life what you can get for yourself. You only live once. That's a profound distinction and something worth thinking on, but we don't have time. So that's the secular humanist. Then you've got those uh, who probably live within that worldview but have more of a sense of karma. And this isn't the technical religious term that refers more to this life influencing the next, but it's more the popular Western understanding that what you do today will influence tomorrow. What goes around comes around. And so the person who believes that what goes around comes around reads this, comes to terms with this reality, and they say, it's not fair. This isn't fair. I thought what goes around comes around. I thought if I sowed in generosity that I would reap in benefits. I thought if I was a good person, then good things would happen to me. And the group of people who believe exactly the same thing are those Christians who believe in the prosperity gospel. You guys know about this? Prosperity gospel? Grew up out of the USA, now reached its clawed, mangled hands right across the world, massive in Asia, massive in Africa. And according to that gospel, which is very karmic, it says, if you do the right thing, if you obey God, if you give money to the church, if you serve, if you say you'll follow Jesus, if you do these things, then God will reward you in this life. He will give you money. He will give you houses. He will give you women or whatever it is that you want. For, for in the African version, it's normally, he will give you good crops. He will give you many children. And so the people who buy up this lie come to terms with this reality and like those who believe in the westernized karma, they themselves say, this is not fair. I was promised when they preached the gospel that if I lived the right life, I would get the stuff that I want. This is not fair. I was coming to terms with this this week. And I was feeling myself tending towards the prosperity, tending towards the the karmic understanding of life for a year now. I was just talking to Charlie about it. I don't think I've said it this explicitly to anyone, but for a year now, I've been struggling with acute depression. Acute depression. And and what it does... um, is What it can do is it can take a believer in the real gospel and can turn them cynically into one of these guys. Why, Lord, why, if I have devoted myself to your gospel, why, if I have devoted myself to preaching your word, why, if I have devoted myself to these people, why would my wages be 12 months 18 months, whatever it is, of acute depression, darkness, despair, futility, meaninglessness. Why would that be my reward? Why is that what I get? If I've put in these things, if I've sowed these things, why am I reaping these things? I sat down this week to prepare this message just praying that God would have given us a text that was just a little bit encouraging. And I read the first few verses and thought, this sucks. We might change the text this week. Let's talk about something fun, something encouraging. 
And so both prosperity and despair can lead us to say, why? This isn't fair. This isn't fair. In, in stark contrast to the secular humanist, the, the, the believer in karma, the believer in the false gospel of prosperity, the believer in Jesus, the one who is centered on his word and his gospel, says to himself in the midst of suffering or in the midst of prosperity, The gospel of Jesus is not about my comfort and it's not about accumulating stuff. The gospel of Jesus says that Jesus is enough even when life sucks. That's what the gospel of Jesus says. The gospel of Jesus says even when it's true that that when I sow in godliness, I reap crappiness. Even though it's true that the good die young. Even though it's true that I experience sickness or depression or despair or, or, or bankruptcy, God is enough. God is enough. Jesus is enough. If I go to Jesus, he will satisfy me. He said himself, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not be hungry, who who believes in me will never thirst. He gives me that promise and I trust in that promise. Not the promise of the false Jesus who will multiply your investments, who will expand your territories. I think for many of us, we have this superstitious understanding of faith. Even though we affirm the Apostles' Creed, which says nothing about that, in our hearts we have this superstitious understanding that when we suffer, we ask, what have we done wrong? That when we do something right, when we serve, when we invest in the kingdom of God, we say, where are my rewards? That we believe somewhere in our heart that if we're a good person, good things will happen to us. That if we're a godly person, God will give us good things. And the main problem I have with that understanding is the Bible. Because Jesus said John the Baptist was the greatest man to ever have lived. Better than Moses, he said. The greatest man, the greatest prophet, the most upright. Didn't drink, didn't smoke, didn't swear. Lived in the wilderness. Bees, honey, preaching. Obedient to God right up to the point where he got his head chopped off. So did God give him riches? Did he expand his territory? Did he give him health? No, he took his head off. Not much health in decapitation. Right? I'm not a doctor, but I'm, I'm pretty sure there's not much health in decapitation. And so the Christian who trusts in the gospel of Jesus in the face of all of this rubbish that's around them in the world says with Solomon, and he starts out right, he says, all this I laid to heart, examining it all, and this is verse 1, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. 
whether it is love or hate. The believer in the gospel understands that righteous living won't earn him an easy life, that God is more interested in his holiness than in his happiness. He's more interested in his Christ-likeness than in his comfort. And that no matter what happens, whether you're decapitated for preaching the gospel or you live to a ripe old age, everything is in the hands of God. God is sovereign and God is good. And I've got to tell you, that is the only... And, and, Listen, everyone look right at me. That is the only truth that has got me through some of these days over the past year or two. Because what else will do it? There are other ways of medicating ourselves when the heart is broken. There, 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 there's alcohol to be drunk to, success, to, to excess. There, there are drugs to be taken. There, there are affairs to be had. There are things that we can indulge in that will bring some relief. They will. If you're feeling depressed, doing a few lines of coke, that will bring you some relief. All right? I'm not going to tell you it won't. Having a few shots of strong whiskey, that's going to help you for a time. But pretty soon, you're going to end up right back where you started. In despair. That's the whole point of this book. Solomon keeps saying, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I've had feasts, I've had wine, I've had women, I've had all of these things, and yet I'm still back where I started. Everything is meaningless. Jeremiah says in, in preaching to the Israelites, he says from God's words coming through his mouth, he says, be shocked, heavens. The heavens above are shocked. Be desolate, says the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. Now, now, now just check yourself now. He says they've committed two evils. The Israelites have committed two evils. We today are committing two evils. They have forsaken me, the Lord. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. That's one evil. And they have dug out for themselves wells, broken wells that can hold no water. That's what God thinks when he looks at us. That's what he thinks when he sees me struggling with this despair and depression and going to stuff instead of going to the fountain of living waters. See, this experience, what Solomon's experiencing and calling evil, it will make us thirsty. And God has designed it that way. God has designed your life to leave you thirsty as hell. And he's designed it that way so that you'll go to the fountain of living waters that's just raining down from heaven, constantly available to you, never ending. But what shocks the heavens, what shocks God himself, is when we go out to the desert and just keep digging wells, that have no water or that can hold no water. It, you know, it's like at the beach, digging with my uh, daughter, India. We're digging this, ha- this big hole in the sand, 
digging, 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 trying to dig a well. We eventually get it deep enough, go and get some water, fill it up, and what happens? It drains right out the bottom. These are the things that we medicate ourselves with. These are the idols that we turn to worship. I mean, you just fill the blanks. For you, it might be going to church. Going to church for you might be the empty, dusty well that is diverting your attention away from the fountain of living waters. So, if that's the case, and that depressing picture is the reality, which it is, that if the reality is that life is hard and death comes to everyone, as much as we try and as much as we try and tell ourselves that's not the case, it is, in this broken world, then what's the response? What's the Christian response? The Christian response is YOLO. The Christian response is to say, you only live once, so live to the glory of God. As a church, we understand that we exist to bring glory to God as we make disciples of all nations. That we exist to bring glory to God, to worship God in all that we do in such a way that people will come to faith in Jesus so that they'll stop hewing out for themselves, stop digging out for themselves dry, dusty wells and start drinking from the fountain of living waters. If what we're about is any less than that, then I'm quitting because it's just not freaking worth it. This is too hard. So I just want to finish just looking really practically at a couple of things that Solomon goes to that I think are really good for us to think about. And, and, and I want to get a little bit of feedback from you guys and then we're done, all right? So this is verse 7 to 10. This is his advice to you. Go and eat your bread in joy and drink your wine with a merry heart for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let no oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you're going. Sheol is just the grave. You're going to the grave. And so he mentions there four things. He mentions food and drink. He mentions parties. He mentions marriage. And he mentions work. And so I just want to look at those four things. And I want, I want to ask us, how do we pursue those things in a way that redeems them so that they're not just empty wells that we're trying to satisfy ourselves with, but rather as we satisfy ourselves at the fount of living waters, how can we then redeem these things so that our mission and vision as a church and as people, as Christians, can come to reality? How do we do those things to the glory of God so that people come to know Jesus? All right, I'm going to be asking you the question because I've got nothing. I've just got... 
I've written those four things out. I'm, I'm wanting you to give me the answer, all right? So first of all, food and drink. He says, go and eat your bread in joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. Sorry, teetotalers. It's in the Bible. Um, eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. One of the things I want us as a church to do, and you'll see this in the, in the coming months, we'll talk more about this, is I want us as a church, as our main way of engaging the community around us, is to forsake 30 years of church tradition and just stop setting up programs that we can invite people to, that they might come along the church and fill our building so that we can feel like we're worth something, right? That's a cynical uh, way to say it, but I think it's true. And, and, and instead, for us to ask the question, what are the rhythms of life that exist in the community around us, and how can we step into those rhythms in order to redeem them for the sake of our mission as a church? If none of that makes sense, then I'll be talking about that more in the future. But one of the rhythms that exists around us in the community around us, what is it? Most obvious one. Eating. Eating. Drinking. Eating bread. Drinking wine. These are things that God has given us as a gift, food and drink, to be enjoyed. Those who don't know Christ abuse them and use them to fill up that which is lacking. Those who trust in Christ should be able to be satisfied by Him alone and then be able to enter into that rhythm and redeem it for God's glory. So Solomon's right. Eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. So let me ask you, how can we as a church or you as individual Christians or you as families, how can we take Solomon's advice and use it in such a way to bring God glory and or see people come to faith? Give me some ideas. I wish I had a whiteboard right now, but I don't. It's probably the easiest one. Be thankful as we eat and drink. Good. That will glorify God. Yep. Don't do it in excess. Right. Why do we eat or drink in excess? Because it's a well that we're trying to dig up. We drink and eat in excess because we're empty, because we're hungry and thirsty, but it's for more than bread and wine. So fill up at the fountain of living waters, and I guarantee you won't have those urges to eat and drink to excess. I'm speaking from experience. All right, others. Eat with non-believers. What did Jesus do from the start of his ministry to the end? That really peed the religious people off. He ate with sinners. He ate with unbelievers. He ate with people who were hated. He ate with people who were rejected. I think one of our greatest sins as Christians today is that we just hang out with each other. Yeah, let's all have lunch after the church, in the church, with the church people. And there's nothing wrong with that in itself, but if you're not eating with others, then we don't have our priorities right. Caroline Springs is set up really well for street parties, for barbecues, for inviting your neighbours, right? We've got it pretty easy here in this respect. All right, any other thoughts? 
I'll tell you one thing that will really stand out to people around you. If you eat with unbelievers and you enjoy your food and your wine or your Coke, if you're a Baptist, sorry guys. No, no, I'm kidding. You're not that kind of Baptist. All right. It, right? If, if, you, if you invite people around and eat and drink with them and, and enjoy it, that will freak them out. Because I'm telling you, most people think Christians are sitting around at an empty table and just praying, all right? And that God's up in heaven looking angry, carrying a stick, just waiting to whack someone if they smile or laugh or enjoy food or wine or something else like that. Like, like God is up in heaven just, just really pissed off all the time. And just looking at us having a good time and saying, you better get back to praying. I'm going to whack you. And I can whack you. And I will whack you. Which is com- the complete opposite of the picture of God we have in the Scriptures. Both God from the beginning who gives every good gift to Adam and Eve to enjoy, through to Jesus, who went to parties, went to weddings, sat down with tax collectors and sinners, and showed them how much he loved them by eating with them. All right, so that's one thing we can do. Solomon is right, check, redeemed. Second thing, parties. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. That's a Jewish way, a Hebrew way of saying go to parties all the time. White are the garments that you wear to parties, to celebrations, to feasts and festivals. And oil is something that you anoint yourself with. From day to day, it'll be olive oil, just plain old olive oil. For parties, it'll be perfumed oil, the good stuff. And what he's saying is just do that all the time. Get on your party dress Put on your perfume and do it more often than you're doing right now. Go to parties. But I thought Christians were all about not going to parties. Wrong again. I don't know how we got this. How did we get here? No, Christians not only go to parties, but they hold the best parties. I don't know how many times after I became a Christian when I was 19, up until that point, I spent five, six nights a week going to parties, going to clubs, and, and you know, just, just doing whatever, ending up completely a shadow of myself in the morning. I don't know how many times after I became a Christian, I would have a party at my dad's house where I was living, because he encouraged us to, and my friends would come along, they would experience something different, and they'd go, this is actually fun. And it wasn't that we didn't have alcohol and we didn't let them smoke and we didn't eat pizza. Like, we had all those things. It just wasn't going YOLO crazy, trying to squeeze the last drops out of life at the expense of everyone else. It was good, godly partying, enjoyment of life and food and drink and friendship. People love that. And that's what they're trying to get when they go the other way. That's what they're trying to get. I think as Christians, we often think everyone's out there and all they care about is getting drunk and getting high and having sex and using people and it's just because they're evil. No, it's because they're trying to find something. They're trying to get satisfied in something. And the reason they keep doing it and doing it is not because they like it. I hated going to clubs five nights a week. It was too loud. I couldn't talk to anyone, which means I couldn't really flirt with anyone. And, 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 and the drinks cost heaps. And I I would go back night after night after night, not because I liked it, but because I was looking for something. 
I was searching for something. I was thirsty and I was hungry. And so I kept digging in the desert and everyone is doing that. In our context, maybe it's not that so much. Maybe it's just God help us pay off this friggin' mortgage on our seven-bedroom house. We didn't need it, but we felt unsatisfied with what we had, and so we went in the deep end. Like, you just need to do the translation for yourself and for your friends, but one of the antidotes to that is good partying. It's good Christian partying, where we sit around and enjoy God's gifts of not only food and drink, but friendship, deep conversation, life-giving encouragement, laughter. That'll blow your neighbors' minds if they come to a party that they enjoy at a Christian's house, all right? Parties. I was going to ask you for some answers on that, but we're running out of time. In fact, we're just way over time, but there's two more really important ones. Verse 9, this is marriage. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. All the days of your vain life, you just had to get that in there, your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in the toil at which you toil under the sun. Here's what he's saying. He's likely come to the end of his life now, and he's, he's had 700 wives, 300 concubines. They've led him away from God. And I think here he is, he's realized that, and he's repenting of that. He's let his lusts lead him away from God. And so he says to us younger men here today, and all of us are younger than him, he says, enjoy life with the wife. That's the singular definite article, the wife. The wife whom you love all the days of your vain life. That's all of your life that he has given you under the sun. Because this is your portion in life and this is your toil at which you toil under the sun. He says, it's going to be hard. This is going to be work. Drinking, eating and partying, they're not too hard, right? Anyone can do that. Enjoying your wife for all of your life, that's going to be toil. That's going to be hard. But it's worth it. Give me a couple of ways that we can use our marriages to glorify God and bring people to faith in Jesus. Absolutely. It was speak well of them in public. How many of you guys, when you go around your mates and the, and the topic turns to marriage, how many of those cowardly, selfish morons will start bitching about their wives? You've got to take the credit card back off her. She's just gone crazy with it. Oh. Yeah, you've got to go home to the ball and chain. Sorry, guys. epidemic among men of all ages. And so there is an explosive witness that you can have if you step into that conversation and say, I love my wife so much. She is so good to me. I would die for her. And the opposite is so prevalent that pretty soon they're going to start wondering why you're like that. And the sooner that you can say that it's not because she's perfect, or it's not because she's the answer to all the things that you're talking about, the better. The sooner you can say, she's not my God, she's not my idol, she's not perfect, we yell at each other, we have arguments, but God, is she good. She's a good gift of God. Anyone else? 
Why does marriage exist? Paul tells us emphatically in Ephesians chapter 5, 22 and following. Paul says marriage exists. The reason God invented marriage was so that it would be a living picture of Christ's love for the church. He says marriage is mysterious, but I'm going to give you the answer. This is why it exists. He says, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church, laying down his life for her. Wives, submit to your husbands as, the ch- as to the Lord, just as the church submits to the, uh, Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands. And that that dynamic, which when played out in the biblical way, is beautiful and, and, and mutually beneficial and strengthening and romantic and... and, and dripping with pleasure and, and, and compliments and satisfaction, when people see that, it's a picture. It's a little movie of Christ's love for the church. It's a little picture of the gospel. And it's going to be work. But it's work worth doing. Not just for yourself, not just for a strong marriage, but so a watching world can look at you in the midst of the world we live in, where it's just, you know, like we've been married for three years, we can get divorced now. I had this guy, I just got to tell you a, a funny story. I had this guy who really liked this other guy. Uh, sorry, not this other guy. I'm getting into gay marriage another time, but this was a guy who liked another girl. And, uh, he really liked this girl, and then she got engaged, and he said to me, I'm, I'm so annoyed. I'm going to have to wait at least three years now before I can date her. And he's kind of being funny and kind of not. So in the midst of a world like that, where it's divorce on demand, if you have a marriage that displays the gospel of Christ's love for the church and the, the, the church's love for Jesus... That will speak a thousand words to a watching world, all right? Food and drink, parties, marriage, and then work, finally. He says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in the grave to which you're going. So he says, even though life is short, even though you only live once, the answer isn't just to go, well, I'm not going to work, because there's no point. He says, no, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Work hard. He's going to say later, if you don't work hard, the roof starts leaking. Right? Things fall apart if you don't work hard. But even in itself, just to bring glory to God, just as a response to the gospel, work hard at that which God has given you to do. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Friends, I think that if we see our lives as these rhythms, if we see the community around us living out these rhythms of food and drink and parties and marriage and work, relationships, as we, if we see those rhythms and look at ways in which we can participate in them and redeem them, having drunk deeply from the, the, the well of living waters, the fountain of living waters, then we will make a profound impact on the world around us. We will bring glory to God and then we will be able to have abundant opportunities to share the gospel with those who don't know Jesus. There is a whole lot more to say and no time to say it, so let me just close in prayer. 
Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you for Solomon's wisdom and also for his honesty. We thank you for the words of a man who has lived life richly and deeply and yet apart from you has found an empty well. I pray that what shocks you and shocks the heavens would shock us as well, that we would see and be made aware of those areas of our life where we're we're forsaking living water that never runs out and digging in the desert instead. Lord, it's not that we enjoy food and drink and marriage and sex and work too much. It's that we enjoy them far too little. It's that we enjoy them in a way that doesn't bring you glory, that doesn't point others to you, to your gospel. Father, forgive us for when we shake our fists at the heavens and accuse you of not holding up your end of the bargain, for not giving us the good things that we deserve. Rather, let us trust in your sovereignty, in your providence, in your purpose, in the fact that you are about making us holy, not just happy, that you're about making us Christ-like, not just comfortable, that you're about leading us into godliness, not just greatness. Please bless us as a church. This is going to be a community effort to see this happen. No amount of preaching from the front can make it a reality. Lord, help us to help one another. Help us to arrange ourselves as the church in a way that will see this happen for your glory and for our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.